Well, good morning again, church. Uh, thank you so much for gathering this morning, and thanks for bringing the church into uh, this particular space. On this particular day, uh, first thought for me is like, the trailer doesn't need to be loaded up afterwards, so that's a good thing, right, uh, with this storm that's coming in. But so glad that you are here. If we've never had the opportunity to meet, my name is Jamie. It's my great joy and privilege to be one of the pastors at Crosspoint. And so welcome again. For those of you that are joining us online, thanks for inviting us into your living room, around your dining room table, wherever you happen to be. And this morning, it's my joy to open up God's word again, um, but I just want to call your attention to something. Eric made mention of it just a moment ago in, in the welcome, but the truth is the tomb is still empty, and so even everything, again, that we're doing today, and really as the church is all in light of the empty tomb. And so I want to read to you as we get going this morning just uh, this quote in a book called Surprised by Hope by theologian N.T. Wright, and just look at these words, and let's Let's rest in this, let's rejoice in this, and let's be part of this epic celebration that Easter brings. And so he's commenting on the fact that we tend to just give it one day, and we gave 40 days to Lent, and then we're just like, we got one day to celebrate? Like, what's up with that? So here's what he says. He says, but my biggest problem starts on Easter Monday. I regard it as absurd and unjustifiable that we should spend 40 days keeping Lent, pondering what it means, preaching about self-denial, being at least a little gloomy, and then bringing it all to a peak with Holy Week, which in turn climaxes on Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then after a rather odd Holy Saturday, we have a single day of celebration. He says, Easter week itself ought not to be the time when all the clergy sigh with relief and go on holiday. It ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayers or even before. Some of you are like, amen, I can get behind that. With lots of alleluias and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. Is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our liturgies? And is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply the one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom. And I think he's spot on. It's our invitation this morning, but not only this morning, as we leave here, even as the church, like, is to understand who we are, that we are the people of God sent on the mission of God. We are resurrection people, and so the resurrection is something to be celebrated every day, and I'm thankful that we get to journey through the book of John in this series that we've been doing called Come and See. And the text we're gonna be in, we were toward the end of it last week in John chapter 20, but we are gonna be back in John chapter three this morning. And it's another invitation for us to come and to see and to behold and realize what this story of the resurrection, like how it can shape your life and my life. And so if you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to turn to John chapter three. 26, we're gonna be reading this morning. Um, as always, you can also go, 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 uh, dot life, um, and we might have lost action plus disparagement plus destruction. And that's not talking about the person that you're envious of. That's talking about what's going to happen to you. That's what's going to happen to me when I allowed envy or jealousy, thinking I deserve more when I fail to see all the ways that God has been so good and kind and gracious and merciful toward me. It's dejection plus disparagement plus destruction. It starts with me feeling, oh, kind of dejected. Then maybe to say disparaging words about this other person or even disparaging words about God. And then it ultimately leads to my own undoing, my own destruction. 
But let's look then. If this is this problem, it wasn't really a problem that people were going to Jesus, but it reveals the problem, the issue within the human heart. Let's look at John the Baptist's response. So turn with me to verses 27 to 30. I'll read these again. He has this remarkable response. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. So he's not looking at his circumstances, he's looking upward. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now that line, this joy of mine is complete. Man, isn't that what we're after? Like, we want joy. And joy is not found, it doesn't happen when we're envious or jealous of other people. And joy actually doesn't happen, it actually doesn't occur even when we get what we think we want or deserve. It might feel that way for a moment, but it's fleeting. John here is dialed into something that is unchanging. He has a clear grasp of who he is. And so in some ways, maybe just think about it. This is a study in self-understanding. John the Baptist seems to be secure in who he is in his relationship with Christ. And so it would help us all to ask ourselves the question, do you actually know who you are? Do you know who you belong, like who you belong to? How do you see yourself? And so there's three things, I think, in this, this section here where John calls our attention to. And what he does right away, I think the first thing is he has this disposition of, and this recognition that everything comes from the hand of God. He knows that he's not an owner, that he's a steward. It would maybe call to mind, go read James chapter one. You get to verse 17 and it speaks of every good and perfect gift comes from above, it comes from the Father of lights. So literally everything that you have in your life that would be regarded as good, it's all a gift. And John lives with this disposition. So I think the first thing we see, it'd be fair to say, he lives with a mindset that I am blessed. No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. He recognizes that. And so yeah, for a time, man, he had the influence, he had the crowds. But his identity is not caught up in that because the moment the crowd started shifting and moving away, he's not devastated by it. it. Like, how can you and I become the kind of people that when circumstances change, we're not devastated? How can we become the kind of people, because the scriptures call us, if we are a church and we're a family, to rejoice with those who rejoice. It doesn't say be envious of those who are rejoicing. It doesn't say give lip service, but then secretly be envious or jealous or make snide comments behind their back or come up with some way to justify how they got what they have. Say, well, they had this unique circumstance or they had this. We all have it. Like all of us have been immensely blessed. And that doesn't mean there's no difficulty. And that doesn't mean that it's always been an equal playing field. But John lives with a disposition that it all flows out of the good and gracious hand of God. Philip Ryken, one of his studies on this, says it this way, the truth is that if God wanted us to have more right now, we would have it. If we needed different gifts to enable us to glorify him, he would provide them. If we were ready for the job or the ministry we want, he would put us into it. If we were supposed to be in a different situation in life, we would be in it. Instead of always saying, if only this and if only that, 
God calls us to glorify him to the fullest right now, whatever situation we are in. I'm not saying that's easy. And John the Baptist is gonna have some trying times. As you notice the little disclaimer, this all happened before he was arrested. I mean, this guy is going to lose his life. He is literally going to be beheaded for the cause of Christ. It's not to say that things always go well, but there is this view that he has. He's like, everything I have is from God, and he's rejoicing in that. And then he begins to use this wedding imagery. All right? He begins to speak of the groom and the bride and his role as the friend. Modern day sort of equivalent would be he's speaking of being the best man. He's like, I'm blessed, but I'm also the best man. But the, groom, but the, groom friend, the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. Now, what does he mean by that, that he rejoices at the groom's voice? I'll get to that in a second, because there's some really fascinating historical things that are happening if we were to understand kind of first century Jewish culture and people. But let's go to something like we could at least readily understand right now, right? Um, those of you that if you've gotten married, all right, and you picked your wedding party and you chose somebody, your groomsmen, and you chose somebody to be your best man, right? Like, you know that they stand closest to you. And so one of my best friends I picked, I said, I asked him, hey, would you be my best man, right? And so imagine this scene for, for a moment. Like, the best man needs to know he's there to support the groom. He's there to help in whatever way he can. Like, hey, do you have the ring? Like, okay, yes, I have to have that, right? Like, those sort of moments. But the best man lives with awareness this day is not about me. The groom should live with that reality, that awareness as well, that it's not about him. But the best man for sure, right? Like, it's not about me. Now, imagine my wedding, all right? And I'm standing there, I got my best man next to me, and my wife walks in. It was a little different than this. We got married in a gym, but anyway, all right? And so she comes uh, walking down the aisle, crosses half court, all right? She's moving toward me. Um, it's great. And uh, true story. Anyway, um, as, as she moves as she moves toward, all right, and then the pastor says, her and her dad get to the front, like, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And her dad says, her mother and I do, and we shake hands, and he's, you know, he's gonna extend the arm to, and if in that moment, like, if my best man, like, snuck in and, like, took her arm, like, that's, that's not good, right? It's like, what in the world is happening? Like, no, 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 that's not your role. That would be odd, it'd be confusing, there'd be a fight at the altar, right? Like, all of that stuff would be, would be going down. The best man knows he's there to support the groom. That's his role. He's not there. This day is not about him. And I love that John just flat out comes out when people are like, they're all going to him. He's like, I'm not the Messiah. Guess what, guys? He is. The story's about him living for his name, his glory. That's what it's all about. And as ridiculous as it would be for a best man to step in and say, hey, I'll take her, that's absurd, and yet we do it all the time. We literally do that sort of thing. Like that gets lived out. We're like, I'm gonna make the story about me. I'm gonna make even things that we clearly should think like church and ministry and all of that. Like, oh, it's about me. No, how I did not die for the church of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus did that, right? It's his bride. And so interestingly in this, there's sort of mixed imagery. Like we are the bride of Christ. And yet there's also this call where John is saying, hey, I'm like the, I'm like the best man. And I know my role, and I know what my role's not. And I get to be part of making sure and helping the bride and the groom come together. And so this is where the historical part comes in. I think this is fascinating, because I didn't know what it meant when it's like he hears the voice. It's like, is it when he turns and says the ring? Like, I don't know what that meant. Well, 
there's a scholar by the name of William Barclay, and he, I'll just read it because I think he explains it better. But he says, here's what's actually going on. Here's why he speaks of joy. Like, what he's caught up in is this, all right? So this is what historically would have been happening in a wedding, in a wedding preparation. It says, the friend of the bridegroom, or the best man, had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. Now, some of you are in a panic right now thinking about your best man arranging the wedding. But anyway, like, move past that, all right? Um, he took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. And here's where it gets really fascinating. He had one special duty. In addition to all those things, the thing, it was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard what? The bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and he let him in and he went away rejoicing for his task was completed. He is caught up in making sure, like, ah, that they come together and no false lover is brought in. Now, at another level, what John is saying is, like, I have the great privilege of pointing people to the groom. And you and I, as followers of Christ, not only are we the bride, we also have this best man sort of role. Like, we get to point other people to that. We get to help point out in love, like, your pursuit of anything other than Jesus is a false lover. It is, it is sin that's being committed against God. The Bible speaks of his spiritual adultery. That's what it's talking about. And John is just dialed in. He's like, how great is it that I get to play this role? And then he ends this section with this statement that I just, it's just mind-boggling. Like, how in the world? Because it goes against everything. Like, every modern sensibility, everything culturally that's seeking to disciple you and me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, is you are to get yours. Like, it should be about you and me and our name. And it bleeds into literally every facet of life. Unless you think for a moment, like, oh, that that doesn't factor into church and ministry. It absolutely does. But John, did you notice it? He says these words, after the groom's voice, he says, this joy of mine is complete. And then just simply and profoundly and in a way that I wish I could live out, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's like John is completely content to fade in the background, to disappear, to not have it all be about him. And what's so interesting is it speaks of joy right before that. Apparently, in the storyline of the scriptures, to be resurrection people, our joy is found in this sort of downward descent. And isn't that the way of Jesus? Yes, he's exalted. And in this place, yes, the crowds are going to him. But we know where the story goes, right? Like Jesus, who was above all, came down here so that what? Yes, an empty tomb, but it went through a cross first, and apparently, the way you and I are called to live, according to the scriptures, is to take that mindset that John the Baptist has here and say, hey, so be it. I am happy to decrease. I am happy to lose influence. I am happy to have no one actually know my name if Jesus has made much of. I mean, can we just ask yourself that honestly? Like, are you really okay with that? 
Most of the time, I'm not okay with that. Like, I'll say that, I'll preach a sermon about it, I'll study about it, but still in my heart, the reality is like, yeah, yeah, I want Jesus. His name to be made much of, for him to increase. But can I kind of like increase along, along the way too? Like there's these parallel tracks, and sure, he's ahead, but like I'm kind of trailing behind. Like, that's what I want. And John the Baptist not only loses a crowd, I told you, like he ends up losing his life. He was willing to speak God's truth, even to speak truth to the particular powers of that day, and it cost him everything. Somehow, he's like, well, that's where joy is found. It's found in this downward descent. And so I want to look at the last few verses together then and just sort of ask, like, what sort of mindset, like what fuels this? If John has this confidence in who he is, I think what we see in verses 31 to 36, there's this perspective here. And I think what we see then is if the previous verse about who John is, these are about like who God is, who Jesus is, what God the Father did in sending Jesus and sending the Spirit. There's a perspective that's needed. And so if you and I are going to live this life, if you and I are gonna be the kinds of people that not only fade, but like celebrate the fading away, celebrate the disappearing, are okay with that, with Jesus being made much of, like if that would resonate with us, we have to understand what's going on in 31 to 36, all right? And it starts out, it says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. And so maybe a way to think about this as you hear those words read, it's always helpful in the scriptures, again, just ask, like, hey, where are you in the story? And it should be pretty clear, right? The obvious answer is, well, I know I'm not the one from above. What that is speaking to is the one who comes from above is above all, that Jesus is the one who came from above. He is sovereign. He's the one that created everything by the power of his word. He is sustaining everything right here, right now, by the power of his word. He's been doing it for thousands of years. He will do it forever. Like, that's the reality. And any bit of me that thinks somehow I'm above all or that I know best or God should give me this because I know is just nonsense. He has the perspective, right? It's like those moments, right? We'll do a weird analogy and think of it as a cosmic level. Like we have the, those moments, maybe if you're like me and you're watching college football, all right, and they're showing the replay or you're watching the that you're watching the play unfold and because there are overhead cameras and there's all these things, like you see the wide receiver who ran, ran the route and broke free and if only the quarterback had seen him, right? And so what do you do in those moments? You have to help the quarterback by screaming at the TV um, or at least maybe that's just my response to it, right? Like throw him the ball like he's wide open and that dude's just trying to survive. He's just like, I don't know, there's like three 300 pound dudes running at me like trying to knock my head off. Like that's what he was focused on, just sort of surviving in the moment, and he missed it. Now, we can say that because we're like, oh, we see it all, and we can be the armchair quarterback and all of it. But on a cosmic level, right, it's not this armchair quarterback. It actually is that the God of the universe is above all. He sees all. He's orchestrating all, and he's going to work all things together for his purposes. Do you trust that story? That's what this is asking us to do. I'm not saying it's easy because part of what happens, if we, if we were able to zoom out and see what God sees and even what we can see in our own life, it's hard sometimes and there's real pain. 
But if we go back to how this sermon started, in the sermon before the sermon with the resurrection quotes, right? We're a people that, we're resurrection people. We know that this is the story we're part of. This is what we've been swept up into, that there's new creation bursting forth right in the midst of this one. We may not always feel it, but above all is Jesus, and it's objectively true. And if the tomb is empty, then you and I have trusted in the finished work of Jesus, are part of a story where one day there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more jealousy or envy, because we will perfectly be aware of all that we possess right now. Like, I'm just not aware of it right now. I don't have the mind or the eyes to, to see it. But fundamentally, what is true of me is not going to change someday when Jesus comes back. I will just become more aware of like, oh my goodness, I'm your son. I belong to the family. I'm in the presence of God. There'll be no more sin. May our eyes be open to that. And John, we're seeing, like, has this understanding so do you understand who you are in the story? Like this, read, go read Isaiah 6 and Isaiah's vision that he gets of the throne room of God. I mean, what, is it, what happens? He's absolutely undone. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's getting in the presence of God. And the response to the holiness and the majesty, the above allness of God is to fall at his feet, to worship him, to surrender, to say, Lord, whatever, whatever you need. John the Baptist is living with that sort of mindset. And then the language continues. So he says, the one who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. So Jesus comes on the scene and he, he, he bears witness. He speaks about what he's seen and heard and yet no one accepts his testimony. And go read the early verses of John chapter one. This was prophesied, this was spoken of. People are going to reject, his own people are going to reject the light that showed up. And we might look at that and say, oh no, we accept Jesus' testimony 100%. But really do we? Like think about it for a moment. I may accept his testimony of like, I need to trust in him for eternal life, but do I accept Jesus' testimony about what he has to say about money? Are you accepting Jesus' testimony about what he says about sexuality? Are you are you trusting what Jesus says about relationships, about work, about rest? The reality is we might give lip service to he's above all, but the truth of the matter is oftentimes I'm like, I'm gonna listen to my voice. I'm gonna listen to, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. But the calling is not that. The calling is in the language here, look at verse 33, the one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. Other translations, I think the imagery is better here. The one who has accepted his testimony has set his seal that God is true. So the question becomes for us, like, where have you set your seal? Meaning, are you bound to Christ? Are you bound to this story, this story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Are you, have you set your seal that you're all in with being part of this resurrection story? Or are you continuing to be discipled by the narrative of the world that says, the story's about you, man. The story's about you having influence. The story's about maximizing your wants, your desires. And if there's a little bit left over that you can serve or do things for people, sure. But even in that, it doesn't make you feel good to do that. What does it look like to die to that narrative and to embrace the life that Christ has for us? Where have you set your seal? Ultimately, it's just coming back to this story that we've been celebrating, that we celebrate every time we gather as the church. It's this resurrection story. It's the story 
of a God who would send his son, who was above all, who came down. He was above and he came down. And as Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself. And the way that he ultimately was exalted is it went through a bloody Roman cross. And then there's an empty tomb and he ascends and one day he's going to come back. Like This is the story. And in this, here's what I want you to hear. In the trials and the difficulties and of all the things of life where you're not getting exactly what you want or think you deserve, there is a Father in heaven who cares for you deeply, immensely, is crazy about you. Do we actually believe that? Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He's looking out and he's thinking about the church he's ministering to and the, the books he's writing and, and just his interactions with people. And he's like, what's missing? Like, wh- what is it that people just don't get? It's this idea of like the seal has been set, but it's, it's, it's not a full understanding of how amazing the story is that we're part of. And so he says it this way. He says, if you should ask me to state in one phrase what I regard as the greatest defect in most Christian lives, I would say that it is our failure to know God as our Father, as we should know him. That is our trouble. Not difficulties about particular blessings. The central trouble still is that we do not know, as we ought to, that God is our Father. Ah, yes, we say, we do know that and believe it, but do we know it in our daily life and living? Is it something of which we are always conscious? If only we got hold of this, Look what he says. We could smile in the face of every possibility and eventuality that lies ahead of us. I want to be the kind of person that can smile at every possibility or eventuality. And what he's reminding me and what this story here is reminding me of and what John the Baptist has dialed into is that there's a God who is above and he's gracious and he's kind and he's loving. And when I doubt that, The calling for me is to remember the gospel, to preach the gospel to myself, to remember that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he entered into this world and he lived the life that I should have lived and that you should have lived, but we didn't and we failed miserably and we let other lovers in and we committed treason against our king. Like all of this, we are implicated, we are guilty, we are deserving of death and Jesus says, hey, I'll die in your place and the wrath of God that's spoken of at the end of chapter three here is actually poured out on Jesus for those of us that have, that have trusted in Christ. We now get the righteousness of Christ and he takes the wrath and then the invitation is before us. Will we trust? Will we set the seal? Will we bind ourselves to the story of the gospel? Or to the story of self. One leads to death and destruction and devastation, and the other actually leads to life. So hear these words as we close. The Apostle Paul would write in the book of Romans. He's just considering these things. And there's things that we want in life, and there's things that we're hopeful for. It's not a, it's, don't hear this as some sort of prosperity nonsense that, oh, you're gonna get everything that, that, you, that you want. You and I already have everything. And he says this, Romans 8, 32. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? That doesn't mean you and I get every bit of our heart's desire right now. We don't know what is best. We don't know what is truly good. If you'd gotten everything in your life that you had prayed for, your life would be more messed up than it is right now. So would mine be, right? 
But God knows. And when we doubt the goodness of the Father, just stop and be like, he didn't spare his son. And Jesus, who was above all, came down. And it speaks of now we have God's spirit with us and we're reminded of God's word and we get the joy of proclaiming God's word to other people. And that doesn't look like a stage and a microphone 99.9% of the time. It looks like us just talking about these things with other people and remembering the truth of this. And so let me pray for us. The worship team's gonna come back up. And I just wanna give us a moment just to, to take some time and to think through, hey, what is the Spirit bringing to mind right now? Where have you made the story about you? Where maybe you've been demanding, thinking, God, I deserve that, to repent of that. Because if you don't repent, it will actually, it'll rob you of joy. And then remember and receive the grace of God. And part of the means of grace that we're gonna be able to receive is as if you're a follower of Christ, while the worship team is singing, when you're ready, come up and get the communion elements. Those of you that are home, you can get elements ready. If you're a follower of Christ, you don't need to be a member or partner of this church, but it is a meal for those who've trusted in Christ. Come forward, and after the next song is sung, I'll come back up and we can participate together. And then we're gonna rejoice. We're gonna rejoice. This is the story we're part of. The tomb is still empty, and putting all our chips in with Jesus, setting our seal there, believing him, it's the best possible way to live. To decrease so that Jesus might be made much of. That's what we're after, and that's where joy is to be found. So we pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness, where you would send your son. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to submit to the Father, to drink that cup of wrath, to be separated from him there on the cross so that we might be actually brought in as your people. And so God, as we reflect on these things, I ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us in repentance, convict us of sin, but then as well apply gospel comfort to the words that we've heard from your scripture, to the meal that we get to participate in. May it remind us again, may it nourish us, the grace that we have that's available to us. God, I pray for any that are here, watching online, participating that way, that have not trusted in Christ, that would still be in the spot of being under the wrath of God. May today be the day that they trust fully in your grace. May they, that seal, may they kind of just push all their chips in and say, I, I trust you regardless of circumstances. And so God, would you do your work of awakening people, making them come alive to see their need of you? And God, we get to rejoice together in this story. And so as we, as we rejoice through song, through prayer, through scripture reading, through this meal, God, I pray in all of it that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience just a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.